This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey guys, it's Lane with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Please go to iTunes and leave a review. I'm really trying to get higher and more big name podcast guests. Please go to iTunes and leave a review. Good or bad, I don't care. Today I have Russell Marsan on. How's it doing, Russell? I'm doing great, Lane. Thanks for having me on today. Russell works for IPX Exchange, and I uh, thought I'd bring you on and let's talk about 1031 since uh, we're in the seller's market and a lot of our properties have appreciated recently, or a lot of us are sitting on equity, lazy equity. And you guys go to simplepassivecashflow.com and type in that article I wrote about figuring out what's your return on equity. A lot of people who bought their property more than five years ago are probably making less than 5%. And I always say, if you're making less than 5%, shoot, you're probably better off in a savings bond or, or something you know, safer than what the stock market is. Kind of go over the overall 1031 concept. I, I did a, a two property 1031 into nine property, a bunch of turnkeys and single family homes a couple of years ago. So I'll try and interject here and there. I've probably done this about a billion times. So uh, why don't you take it away? Sure. Yeah, well, the 1031 exchange, as you just expressed it, I mean, it's a great way to build wealth. It's, it's actually the greatest wealth building tool in the entire internal revenue code. And there's nothing else that allows um, taxpayers to achieve financial planning to the extent that Section 1031 does. But even though it's the greatest wealth building tool, it's one of the most underused revenue codes um, because of the fact that most people have misconceptions about what a 1031 exchange is. You know, they think maybe you have to find somebody to swap with or that you have to, you know, you can only exchange land for land and houses for houses. And there's just a lot of misconceptions um, about the 1031 exchange. I mean, the basics of 1031 is you get to list and sell your property to, you know, whomever wants to buy it. It's just like any other transaction that you're trying to sell a property. Um, The person that's buying the property from you that you're selling let's say you own a rental property and you've owned it for many years and like you stated maybe it's not giving you the rate of return that you really want on it but you have a ton of equity in that property so you'd like to exchange that into something that maybe produces better cash flow if that's what your objectives are Um, so you want to sell the rental property you list and sell it to anybody whoever wants to buy it yeah so just to use myself as an example i i was sitting on quite a bit of equity i bought my homes in the uh, 2011 or 2009 and again in 2011 I was sitting on uh, lazy equity there and I want to get at that equity and you know when you when an investor has equity you have two ways of getting at it you can either refinance it or I chose to do this 1031 exchange because my properties were in Seattle which has really no cash flow and the rent to value ratios are pretty poor there so I did the uh, thing where I, I transferred my properties from an appreciation asset to a cash flow asset. So that was why I chose the 1031. Saw great appreciation in a short time period. And you know, that's where most investors start, right? They buy their first rental property and, and they're really going after appreciation because they have, they have very little money. So they want to you know, build one. They want to build money. They want to build equity. Once they have a substantial amount of equity, then it's time to start thinking, okay, well, how can I better position this equity into cash flow so I have a better return on investment on my money? Uh, there's other objectives as well, though. Sometimes it's even maybe, well, I, I want to get into less management headaches, so I'm going to exchange into that. Or 
maybe I want to build a dream house someday and I want to buy a piece of land that I can do that on in the future. There's all different types of objectives that you can, um, that you, you can do within a 1031 tax deferred exchange. It's kind of like, almost like the sky's the limit in 1031. So it's, but it allows you, you list and sell and then you have the time frames of 45 days after you close escrow on the one you sell, you have 45 days to identify, 180 days to close. So you have you know roughly six months to sell up after you sell a property to go out and find and buy replacement properties. And you can mix and match several types of properties. Like your description of what you were able to do, you sold two properties and bought nine. That's fantastic. But most people don't understand you can do that. They think you have to sell one for one. Yeah, so let's back up a little bit. I think... Uh the whole reason why you're doing this 1031 exchange is say you have a property that's uh, you sell for 450 and you have, you had it, you bought it for uh, let's just say 300 and you have $150,000 of uh, equity bump because it's a, not a primary residence, you have to pay taxes on that $150,000 gain. So that's going to go right to your, your uh, income statement there. And you got to pay taxes. So by doing this 1031 exchange, you carry that forward. And um, you, you can, in theory, carry this forward forever. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, you know, in the great state of Washington, a lot of people just decide they're not going to do an exchange because they think they're going to only pay 15% in taxes. Um, because you know, there's no state tax, which is one of the great benefits in living in the state of Washington. Um, but reality is nobody ever pays 15%. Uh, now, capital gains tax on, for example, your example lane of the $150,000 of gain, that's taxed at a rate of somewhere between 15 and 20% now for federal purposes. Um, and then there's also additional taxes now that most people don't know about. There's also a 3.8%, which is the net investment income tax which was created to um, fund the Affordable Health Care Act. Um, so that's, on, that's another 3.8% as well. And then what you alluded to a moment ago of the $150,000, that's just gain. There's also what's called depreciation recapture. So, you know, when you depreciate an asset, then all depreciation you've taken over the years is recaptured upon sale. Uh, and that's taxed at a much higher rate. That's taxed at 25% to the federal government. So taxes are pretty substantial, even for a Washington state resident. And, and you're correct. Yeah. Once you sell, if you do an exchange, you get to for all those taxes. And a lot of people think, well, you know, taxes are inevitable because in life, right, two things are inevitable you know, death and taxes, but that's not actually true. Um, the death thing, yeah, that's inevitable, but we, the tax, taxes are not because current estate tax law is very favorable. The estate tax doesn't even kick in for federal tax purposes until amounts that exceed over $5.4 million per spouse. And the heirs also get a step up in basis. So, you know, if, you, if Lane, you bought a property when you were very young for $100,000, and when you pass away, that property is worth a million dollars. It was under the 5.4, so there's no estate tax. And also, your heirs get a step up in basis. So their basis in the property, as soon as they take title to it, um, is the fair market value as, the, as of the date of your passing. So if it was worth a million dollars, even though your basis was a hundred thousand, their basis is a million dollars. So they can sell it the day after they inherit it. And they don't even need to do a 1031 exchange because they have no profit. There's no gain there. 
Um, so yeah, taxes are not inevitable. You can, in a lot of cases, um, carry carry the deferral your entire life and then eliminate it. All right. So before we get into the mechanics of the 1031 exchange, you know, that's the 1031 exchange is just one tool on toolbox. Some of the drawbacks that I personally see for, for myself, I'm actually looking to sell my portfolio and possibly put it into multifamily syndications. And there's some limitations with the 1031 exchange there. And, um, you know, some for, for more conservative investors, I think the 1031 exchange is a good way to keep leveling up bigger properties. Um, but it's, it's a little annoying each, you know, doing these transactions, trying to time the sale and trying to time the, uh, the purchase of the new asset, you know, like right now, take, for example, it's a seller's market. Yeah. You can get a good price, but what else are you going to put it in? I mean, if you're under the gun, under a time limit, it's just very hard to find decent investments and, but Hey, you might be fine with, with decent investments. So the, the saving the taxes might be the better way to go. So Russell, let's, um, let's kind of go over the 180-day and the 45-day rule just so that people can understand the constraints here. Sure. So um, those time periods that you just stated, the 45-day rule and the 180-day rule, those time periods are concurrent, and they both begin at the close of escrow of the first property sold. Um, so if I'm selling one property and buying one property, when I close on the property I'm selling, that has started my clock. So from that closing date, I've got a maximum of 45 days to, to name and identify properties to the qualified intermediary. That's us. And we have a total of 180 days to actually get those properties closed. Before the 45th day, a taxpayer can change their identification all they want, but after the 45th day, they can't. So they're set in stone on only closing on something that I've, I've identified. And you stated correctly, this being a seller's market, um, that's the number one killer of 1031 exchanges right now is that 45 day rule. Um, so it's, it's really important that people in, that are engaging in 1031s begin to look as early as possible and don't even wait until day zero, before day zero, before you've closed on your relinquished property, find your replacement property, try to get into contract on it as early as possible to help kind of, you know, better secure your exchange from being successful past the 45th day. All right, so if you use myself as an example, you know, I sell my property, but then our, even before I sold my property, I was, I was already letting my uh, agents and my turnkey providers know like, hey, I need inventory guys. So even a few weeks before that, I was already getting the inventory that was in the pipeline. So I could name, put it on this 45-day list. So I already had a draft list going like a week or two before my property sold. I mean, you know when your property is going to sell. I mean, you're, you're already in escrow and, and doing all that. So you have time to plan, but it's when the day zero starts and you start um, going through properties, I mean, it's hard because you're going through due diligence. And um, by the way, you should never buy a property cash only and with no appraisal. That's just a, a recipe for a scam right there. And a lot of uh, turnkey providers are doing that these days. But uh, back to the 1031 exchange. Um, yeah, you should you should always be looking ahead because, you know, one or two properties might drop out. And, you know, I had to get nine properties. That was my magic number to use up all my available funds. And you don't have to use up all your funds, but definitely to optimize it. You know, I, I had to be, it was hard to find inventory. Did I think I left anything out there, Russell? 
No, discussing, I think it's pretty pertinent to discuss that 45 days, you know, like you're talking about here, um, because like I said, that's the number one thing. So kind of what we're seeing is people will say, okay, well, I only want to buy one property in my exchange, but I'll identify three. And then it goes past the 45th day and the one that they're in contract on uh, falls out for whatever reason. And then they go, they name two other backup properties. So they'll go ahead and write up an offer on those. Well, in this market, those backup properties don't wait. So in a lot of cases, if you don't, if you can't close on the one that you really are in contract on, the one you really want, and that one falls out after the 45th day, then you're kind of, your exchange is a high percentage of the probability rather of that exchange failing because the properties are not around anymore. So that's why, you know, one of the products now on the market, a lot of people are using as a backup position because it's guaranteed to be around is what's called a Delaware statutory trust. Um, and it's like a percent ownership of large commercial buildings um, where these sponsor companies will take down four or five buildings, create this Delaware statutory trust, and then they sell off, you know, basically pie sized interests of the Delaware statutory trust. And it is a vehicle that can be 1031 exchange. So by naming something like that as a backup property, um, that's guaranteed to be around if you shouldn't, if you're not able to whatever reason close on the one that you want, or you just can't find something in the 45 days. Cause if, if your clients are looking in the Seattle area, that's a hot market and you know, it's tough to get into contract on properties and 45 days goes by pretty fast. So, you know, in some cases people decide to just, you know, I'll just, I'm going to take advantage of a seller's market right now and take my you know big equity position and just park it for a while uh, in something like that, that type of product and then wait the market out or, or, and then reposition it somewhere else. Yeah. That 45 day rule is the, is the hard thing. I mean, it's like you can, you, you write a list of all the people you potentially want to marry at age 25. And if they're, uh, <laughs> if they're gone or taken your SOL, right? Like you, you just can't, you can't pick anybody else. And, yeah. and I have a few articles on simple passive cash flow. If you guys just Google search on there, 1031, a bunch of, we've got a bunch of just random tips to, to when you go through yours. But yeah, they definitely want to get into that Delaware statutory trust. Um, maybe if, so what basically what you're doing there is you're pay, paying your, your money goes, you close on the property, your sale, the money goes into a trust in your name. And then what, what happens from there? Well, so, it, so what happens first of all, so you, you close on your relinquished property and let's say, you know, you sell for $500,000 and it's all cash. Uh, but once you close, the $500,000 is now sitting in the exchange account with a qualified intermediary. Now, then you identify uh, a Delaware statutory trust because you decide, you know, that's something that really fits you in this market now. Uh, then that's uh, the exchange proceeds would end up going into that and closing in that. And basically the way that structure works is uh, there are corporations called sponsor companies. Uh, and you can Google DST or Delaware Statutory Trust and see how this structure works. But basically what they'll do is the, the sponsor companies will buy, you know, four or five, 10, 15, $20 million commercial buildings, apartment complexes, you know, whatever the strategy is for that particular uh, sponsor company. And then they'll take down and buy those properties 
and they'll own it under a Delaware statutory trust. And then what they'll do is attract in 1031 investors. Say, you know, here's, here's the portfolio, here's the product, here's the return. Um, you know, how much would you like? And so you're selling for $500,000 in your exchange. So they say, well, great, here's a $500,000 slice of ownership of this Delaware statutory trust and these properties. Um, then you're just, you're paid. It's a very passive form of ownership. Uh, they're all triple net lease properties. So, you know, owners in that structure don't have to do anything. There's no management. There's, they don't even pay property taxes or insurance. It's all taken care of by the tenants. So, so that would be a passive. like, that's a like kind exchange from, from real estate yeah. to triple net. Yeah. The IR, the IRS came in, the IRS created, um, the revenue procedure that defined that as being uh, an exchangeable type of product, uh, the Delaware statutory trust. Now, so I guess one of the downsides to it, though, is that, you know, you're really, there isn't really a, an exit strategy on demand. So if you do buy into something like a Delaware statutory trust, and then two years later, something else comes on the market in Seattle and you say, wow, I'd really love to exchange out of the DST and into this property that's for sale near my home. Well, you really can't do that. So you really have to wait for that property to go full cycle. Uh, typically, you know, they, the Delaware statutory trust do turn over. Um, but it's, you know, various different rates, depending on what's happening in the market and the objectives of that sponsor company. So it could be five years, it could be seven years, but there is no early exit strategy. Uh, so you don't have control over it. That's correct. Yeah. Might not be a bad idea if, you know, if you're, if everyone's thinking that we're two to three years away from the top that, um, you, you, I mean, surely the DST exit would be past at that point. But yeah. Knows- and it- even just like in your example of paying taxes on $150,000, I mean, if somebody doesn't, if they want to take advantage of the seller's market and, you know, keep that equity and then put it, their equity into something that's going to give them a good cash flow that's very passive for a while, then it's a good vehicle for it. They'll have options down the road to reinvest in something else, just not right away. What kind of uh, rates of return are you seeing in these DSTs? Yeah, I, I can't quote those. So you'd have to, I, I, you know, I'm guessing yeah. it's super yeah. low because. No, it's yeah. actually not bad. So, um, I, but I definitely recommend you because if, if anybody that owns single-family rental properties is not going to be getting the rate of return they're going to see from these DSTs uh, from a cash flow standpoint. I'm just seeing it as a, a product where they know that the 1031 exchanger is desperate. No, because there's a lot of product out there, so they have to make their product more attractive than the other competitors. So, so no, they're they're not um, trapping 1031 investors; they're they're attracting them actually. So let's talk about another uh, avenue, which is the reverse exchange. How does that work? Yeah, that's really common. That is a very timely subject in this market, you know, because you know, we've talked about that 45-day rule, and you know, you know, I know that I can sell my property in 10 minutes. Uh, for full price or maybe even above price. But what I'm afraid of is selling my property in 10 minutes and then looking on the market and not being able to find a property. So I'm really afraid of doing an exchange. So there is what's called a reverse exchange, which allows a taxpayer to buy a property first. So theoretically, you can take all the time in the world to scour the market, find your perfect property, and then go into contract on it, and then actually close on it, and then sell your property afterwards, and complete that as a 1031 exchange. 
Now that sounds wonderful. And I guess the obvious question in most people's minds listening to this would be, wow, why doesn't everybody do that? Uh, and I guess the simple answer is, is that not everybody can financially, not everyone can financially afford to be able to do a reverse exchange because it's a very different animal than a forward exchange. Uh, in a forward exchange, you sell a property first. And then you go out within 180 days and buy something. So that exchanger is never on title to both assets at the same time. In a reverse exchange, you have to buy a property first and close on it, but you haven't sold one yet. So the IRS, one of the stipulations is that the taxpayer cannot be on title to both properties at the same time and still be allowed 1031 deferral. So what happens in a reverse exchange structure is we, the qualified intermediary, have to park title to one of the properties. We'll actually create a single member to hold title to. That was a single member LLC again. It broke up a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We create a single member LLC, and it's called a, for exchange purposes. That LLC is called an EAT, an exchange accommodation title holder, and we create an LLC for every individual transaction, for every reverse exchange, because you don't want your clients you know, assets commingle with somebody else's. So yeah, we create that EAT, that LLC, and it's going to either park title to the one they're buying or the one they're selling. In most cases, it's the one they're buying. So what happens is, even though we're going to go on title of the property, we're not actually going to come up with any cash for it. So the taxpayer has to give us the money. We give them a note and deed of trust for those funds. They're basically giving us a loan so we can buy that replacement property. We then go on title and acquire the replacement property with the funds they gave us. After closing, they have 180 days to get their property sold. And then funds from that sale come back in and they actually pay off that source. So wherever the taxpayer pulled that money from to lend to us to buy the property, that gets replaced at the end of the exchange from the proceeds of the relinquished property. Right. So you've got to have pretty substantial liquidity to to front the money on the on the purchase of the new property. Yeah, that's the that's the big thing, right? That that exact issue. Because normally you sell a property first and then you have this big pile of cash to buy something. Well, you haven't sold anything yet in a reverse exchange and you have to buy something first. So where's that cash coming from? So you're exactly right. The taxpayer has to have access to a large amount of cash. Uh, and if not all cash, he has to have at least the amount of cash that's equivalent to the equity in the property he's going to sell. It's not something somebody just can't come in and you know put 5% down and try to do the reverse exchange. They have to have access to cash. It can come from anywhere, that cash. It can be borrowed against their primary residence. It can be you know pulled out of a bank account. It can be borrowed from a friend. You know, it doesn't really matter where that comes from, but those funds cannot be tied to either property. They have to be you know, equity coming in. Yeah, something I'm thinking about right off the bat is a lot of these these guys I talk to that call me, they got these huge HELOCs. Yeah. So this would be a good afternoon for that. Yeah, yeah. HELOC is is the most common way that we find in, in reverse exchanges that people use to front themselves the money to do the reverse exchange. And then also, we're going to go on title to one of the properties, but we don't want to control or manage that property. So 
during the exchange, we triple net lease that property back to the taxpayer. So they're actually gonna have control over that asset during the entire exchange. And, and then if it's not a residential one to four, if it's another type of property, we're also gonna need a phase one environmental audit as well uh, because of the, the liability of anything toxic potentially being there. Um, so, so you can begin to see that you know, this type of transaction is much more complicated, which means it's considerably more expensive as well. You know, a regular forward exchange is only about $1,000 total in costs. A reverse exchange, the fees begin at $5,000 and can go up from there. Right, whereas the regular exchange is probably about a tenth of that. For... Yeah, it's about $1,000 for a regular forward exchange. Total costs, sell one, buy one. But in a, in a reverse exchange, our fees are going to be a minimum of 5000 It can be higher than that. But even if it was at the 5000 there's also going to be additional fees because, you know, there's when we take title to that property, that's an actual transfer. So there's one extra transfer in a reverse exchange that doesn't happen in a forward exchange. So there's going to be more title and escrow fees, excise tax, all that stuff. When I got smart and sold my primary residence to start investing in investments that actually made sense, whoo, I needed a place to diversify quickly as opposed to some money market or some high reward checking account. Let's face it, turnkey rentals are cool and some vacations are great, but they don't come around often. I stumbled upon the American Homeowner Preservation Fund. The owner, George Newmary, once apartment syndicator too, is now sponsoring the podcast. His fund cuts the middleman out to crowdfund the solution to the mortgage crisis in America. They are empowering you to fund the purchase of distressed mortgages and earn returns that smoke any other passive fund. If you find something else better out there, let me know. Oh yeah, they work with families to keep them in their home after buying the underwater note at a huge discount. It's an opportunity to make an impact on families and communities while earning returns. Start investing with as little as 100 bucks in investinhp.com. If you want the free Burn Zone book, please send me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. Skipping back to the DSC, the Delaware Statutory Trust, mm-hmm. um, and I've heard of some, some of these go wrong. We're, where exactly do you have to look out for as a consumer? That Where do people get in trouble with these? Sure. Well, the Delaware Statutory Trust, we haven't had, uh, we haven't seen issues uh, so much with them. What there is a lot of bad taste in the mouth of taxpayers from the previous real estate cycle um, because something back in the early, prior to 2000, there was um, what was called tenancy in common. Um, an, an entire industry kind of popped up using the structure of tenancy and common ownership for large commercial um, buildings. And it was a similar structure to the DST. There would be a sponsor company and the sponsor company would buy, um, you know, a, a property and they would attract in 1031 investors. But instead of buying into the trust, you'd be buying actual tenancy and common ownership interests. Um, so it was a little different structure. The IRS did create a, um, a revenue procedure, which outlined if a sponsor company did these things, then the IRS was willing to issue a private letter ruling to allow that to be um, 1031-like kind property. Um, the problem with, with that, with what happened there, was that that last real estate cycle was, it was crazy on the, on the uptick. And you had had just a handful of companies that had been around a long time with these types of products. 
done great due diligence, had great performance records, and were just really, you know, great companies to invest with. And those companies are actually still around. But the, what happened was there was so much money being made because there was so much property being sold and so much gain and so many exchanges that that industry just exploded. And so companies, sponsor companies were popping up like crazy and they were not doing due diligence on the assets they were buying. They were projecting, you know, long-term uh, investment um, numbers and return on investment numbers based on short-term financing, which, you know, which doesn't work. And then what happened was in that last bad real estate cycle, you know, residential real estate is, you know, typically, you know, on the average is around a 30 year mortgage. Well, that doesn't happen in the commercial world. Typically it's, you know, five years. And so these notes are being with great interest rates. They locked in for the five years, but then when the notes were called in five years, they, you know, the economy had already started to turn nobody was refinancing them. The rates were much higher, which, you know, create, which turned those assets upside down um, from a return standpoint. And so those properties just started failing left and right. And, and it was really because of the negligence of the, a lot of the companies that just kind of sprung up and wanted to make a lot of money. It was just kind of a greed thing. Um, that's not uh, what is, this is a different structure, uh, similar product, which is a great product to have for if you want to go passive and, and actually not have to pay the tax through an exchange uh, and have options down the road. But this Delaware statutory trust is a much easier type of thing to exchange into basically. Would I be able to create a Delaware statutory trust, have people come into my simple passive cash flow fund? Is that, is that an option for me? You would, you would want to research it yourself. I can't give out that kind of advice, um, but as a qualified intermediary, but you'd certainly want to, um, you know, see what the structure is and whether or not you could meet uh, the guidelines for it. So it'd be the light kind would be the, the main thing. Well, just, just the, yeah, because you have to follow their, the guidelines of what that Delaware statutory trust is um, in order to, you know, qualify as a light kind asset. Um, but if you do, then yeah, you certainly can. All right, so I got a scenario here, and this is kind of my scenario. I've got all these rental properties that have appreciated a little bit, and me personally, I've got a little more experience. I'm ready to take off the training reels. So currently, my full portfolio is on sale right now, stabilized portfolio. Am I able to use this uh, Section 721 as an option to uh, trade into multifamily LLC? Well, so you... You can use Section 721 allows you to, you know, basically, you know, donate your real estate to a partnership interest. Um, so you'd want to talk to your tax advisor to see if that, you know, works in your scenario. Um, but um, it is not, you know, obviously it's not Section 1031. And where, where we see 721 most commonly used is in uh, what we call UPREITs. Um, and I think all of your listeners have probably heard of REITs, Real Estate Investment Trusts. When you buy into a REIT, you're not buying real estate, you're buying shares or stock, and they're not, you cannot exchange into any type of stock. Um, so therefore, a REIT share is not like kind, um, but there are some of the REIT companies have facilitated the Section 721, um, which allows the taxpayer to kind of donate their asset to the REIT. And in return, the REIT um, issues them operating units that they can eventually cash in for REIT shares. Um, so it, 
that section code does allow a real estate investor to, you know, eventually get into uh, that type of position that's non-real estate. Um, but of course, once you get into that, you can never back out. It's only a, it's a one-way street. Um, but then when you do get into that, when you do get into a, a position where you own stock instead of real estate through Section 21, one of the upsides is, the downside is you can't exchange back out into real property without paying tax. The upside is you can liquidate at, a, at whatever your pace is. You know, because if you had one $5 million piece of property, if you sell that in one year, you pay all your tax in that year that you sell it. If I instead go into, you know, this type of situation where I now own stock through section 721, then I can liquidate that slowly, right? I can sell 20 shares this year and pay my tax, 100 shares next year and pay my tax, so on and so forth. Oh, I see. So I, I can take the 10 properties I've got, put it into an LLC and then sell off shares to other people. Is that the mechanism? Yeah, it would not be a 1031 type structure. So, you know, but I would delay, essentially delay the taxes. But then as I sell off the shares, I would sell it off one by one and, and ideally try and keep myself out of that top tax bracket. Yeah, if you did, if you, if you were able to use a 721 and you did go from real estate into, you know, some type of stock position, then, then yeah, you could, you could liquidate at your own pace and pay your tax because you are deferring the tax even when you do that. So the tax is still sitting in there in your stock. So when you sell it, you will pay the tax. It's just, you only pay it at the pace that you sell each, each, each share. Right. So instead of this huge, like some, some people have got like a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollar gain. Yeah. They can leak it out slowly. Yeah. And, and any, and bear in mind too, cause you mentioned LLC that any tax paying entity can do a 1031 exchange. So corporations, LLCs, you know, all S corps, they, they can all do 1031 exchanges. It's just that the same tax paying entity that sells must be the same tax paying entity that buys. Um, and you cannot exchange into or out of a partnership interest. So, you know, if you and I and someone else had a three member LLC, and you wanted to be bought out of our LLC, then you know, and we would bring in cash and we would pay you and we would buy you out. That buyout of you is not an exchangeable transaction. So you would pay tax. Um, me and the other partner, we could still do an exchange and sell that asset as the partnership. But that anytime somebody exits or enters a partnership, you, that is not an exchangeable type of transaction. Well. But you can, what you can do is, you know, season things. So if, for example, you know, you and I as buddies, we're in a two member LLC and we owned um, a, a rental property for 10 years. And then we decided, well, we want to go our separate ways with our equity. Um, and we want to do an exchange, but we don't want to go together. What we'd want to do because you and I as that two member LLC held the property for a long time. So our LLC clearly qualifies for 1031 deferral, but you and I as individuals don't because you and I haven't owned the property as individuals, the LLCs owned it. So what we'd want to do is dissolve that LLC at least a year in advance of the sale, deed out as tenants in common. If we want the liability umbrella of an LLC, we can both create a single member LLC and be tenants in common with each other. But we'd want to season that for at least a year, get that on our individual tax returns, 
and then sell it and do an exchange and then we can go our separate ways. Any examples from uh, some unique situations that you've worked with that might bring the awe factor to some folks? Yeah, there's a, yeah. in fact, uh, the great state of Washington just gave us the, the most recent controversial awe 1031 case uh, in just August of last year. Um, I think everybody pretty much is familiar with the name Bartell in the state of Washington. And uh, there was actually a, a famous case, Bartell, um, which is a pharmaceutical right, right, uh, retail. They, um, they did what's called a, a build to suit exchange. So similar to a reverse exchange, you can do what's called a build to suit. So let's say you sell something for $10 million and you found some land for $1 million. And then so you sold for 10 and you bought for one. So that doesn't, you, you pay a ton of tax. So instead I want to use the other $9 million to build on the land that I'm buying in my exchange. It's called, and you can do that. It's perfectly fine. You do what's called a build to suit exchange. Well, in this case, um, there was no way that he was going to be able to build within 180 days. So uh, he entered into a build to suit exchange and he took almost two years to complete his exchange. The IRS in, back in 2000, created a safe harbor, um, their revenue procedure, stating, you know, if you follow these guidelines, then your reverse or build-to-suit exchange is okay. Uh, and one of those guidelines is you have to do it within 180 days. Uh, and so he did it outside of that safe harbor. He went beyond 180 days, and he filed that as a 1031 exchange. And it's been in federal tax. It was in federal tax court for, for many years. It finally, they rendered their decision uh, in just August of last year, um, which actually the federal tax court agreed with Bartell and they allowed the tax deferral of 1031 um, from that, uh, from that exchange, which was kind of a shock to everyone. Um, so that was rather interesting. They have not, since then they've issued that they are not going to acquiesce. So they're not agreeing with that. So they're going to continue uh, to challenge anybody, any type of non-safe harbor exchanges like that, where people go outside the time frame. But nevertheless, it was an interesting kind of uh, event that happened within uh, Section 1031. Right. Yeah. These rules change all the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And a lot of them are based on, you know, case law, you know, private letter rulings, things like that. Um, the, another great one was uh, one that happened. It was a build to suit also, but what happened was he bought from a related party and did a build to suit exchange, which is, there's special rules for related parties. The IRS doesn't like it when you use a related party um, to buy from. And in most cases, they disallow that type of exchange to even happen. What, so what happened was a, a, a taxpayer, a guy, he owned you know, several different entities under LLCs or corporations. He sold a piece of commercial real estate. And what he did was he wanted to acquire a piece of land that he owned as a related party to himself. And he wanted to build on it. So how he kind of circumvented the IRS's um, guidelines in, in all of the, these issues was he actually did a 30-year lease. So he sold his, his commercial building. His re replacement property was a 30-year lease from his related party, which anything over 30 years is actually like kind to real property. 
did a 30 year lease, did entered into a build to suit exchange. So the intermediary built on the land that the, the related party owned. Once the building was done, then that was that lease was transferred to the exchanger. And the IRS actually approved that structure, which we all thought was kind of crazy because that's really outside the box thinking. Because a couple things were done, wouldn't be normally allowed in an exchange, were allowed in an exchange in that scenario. Hmm. So if an investor has a bunch of equity they're sitting on and the, the the general rule is you need to do a like-kind exchange and you're sitting on real estate. How can you do a like-kind exchange into something different like gold or artwork or what are some things you're seeing people exchange out of real estate to still invest? Sure. Well, first of all, just the like-kind, you know, what most people don't understand is that like-kind is such a broad definition in re- within real property because you can exchange you know, if you, somebody's coming out of a high equity position in a rental house, they can exchange that for land. They can exchange it for commercial apartments, industrial, 30-year greater leases. Um, you know, triple nets too, right? Yeah, triple net leases, absolutely. Um, you can uh, go into, you know, mineral rights. So, you know, oil and gas leases, those are actual real property rights. Um, so, you know, those types of things are exchangeable. Once you get into the personal property realm, uh, which is a lot of things that could be, you know, equipment from anything you'd appreciate, like a farmer has tractors or fishermen has boats, uh, you know, those things are all exchangeable. But once you get outside the realm of real property, like kind is means actually like kind. So, you know, you have to exchange an airplane for an airplane or a boat for a boat. You can't exchange a boat for an airplane. And you mentioned some arts and collectibles. Those are exchangeable also. So if somebody wants to sell, you know, rare coins, they can exchange into other rare coins. Um, Bronze sculptures, fossils, you know, kind of muscle cars, all of those things are exchangeable, but they are not exchangeable with real property. So it does have to be real property to be to be able to allow that tax deferral from the sale of real property into you know whatever the replacement would be scenario just recently had a, a client called me and they owned five domino franchises in las vegas they did not own any of the real estate it was all leased to buildings and it was just owned the franchises so that's a that's owning a business right not a Real property. That's only in the business, yeah. But, so his uh, his broker told him you can't. But what he really wanted to do was he wanted to buy real property in an exchange. His broker told him you can't do it because you don't own any real property. His CPA told him the same thing. Well, he got my phone number, and so we chatted, and it turned out he he was able to actually do a substantial amount into real property because he knew his lessor. Because I asked him, I said, "Can you go back to your lessor and can you?" I'm, you only got 10 years left on your lease, but can you push that out to 30 years? All you need to do is get, you know, two 10 year options to extend. And if those options are transferable to any buyer, then you've just created like kind. Um, so he was able to do that with his lessor because he knew him very well. Uh, and so he, then he was able to section out, you know, a value of his sale to go, towards uh, real property he also had um he had done tenant improvements to his property he had done cost segregation 
Um, so, which is personal property, but it's personal property that's within real property. So he found replacement properties that had similar fixtures that he could also do cost segregation on. Um, so he was able to actually put a substantial part of his sale um, that was, you know, look on surface like there was nothing, no real property there. But in reality, he was able to transfer a lot of that in tax deferred into real property. So uh, I'll, I'll ask the question, if you have a bunch of equity in real estate, can you go out and, and transfer it into a Jamba Juice or a Froyo franchise? Well, you can't, not the franchise itself, uh, but although that the franchise, the value of the franchise is actually exchangeable. So if you were selling a Jamba Juice franchise and that value, you wanted to go out and buy, you know, another like kind franchise, you could do that. Um, it's just not real property, mm-hmm. but it is, but it is exchangeable with something of something similar. Would you say if you had a business like a Jamba Juice franchise or a fishing business and you were to transfer it into a boat, would you be able to do that? And maybe use that boat on the weekends for fishing, for fun, (laughs) or live in it? Yeah, so that would be a tax advisor question. (laughs) Um, But so you can't, so first of all, when you get into personal property realm, in real property, like kind is the wild, wild west. It's like all real property is like kind with all real property. But in personal property, it, it must be the same asset class or user code. So, so you can't sell, you know, a Jamba Juice and buy a fishing boat. Um, in fact, it's pretty specific. You can't sell a, you know, Seven Eleven franchise and buy a Burger King franchise because that's not really the same asset class. Um, it would need to be, you know, can kind of convenience store to convenience store or fast food to fast food. So it's pretty specific and you can't cross over into different asset classes, like from, you know, fast food to fishing. Interesting. Well, so um, the uh, 1031 custodians, are you guys lawyers or CPAs or what, what realm do you guys fall in? That's a great question. I wish everybody asked that question. So as a qualified intermediary, um, I actually, I give accredited courses for attorneys and CPAs. I actually teach them. Um, But in order to do what we do, you don't have to be a CPA. You don't have to be an attorney. In fact, to be a qualified intermediary, there's no licensing requirements whatsoever. Um, So literally, if I'm not a related party to you, then or if I don't have an agency relationship with you. So if I'm not your attorney or your CPA or your broker, um, then I can be your qualified intermediary. So, and, and it's, it's scary because there's literally been over a billion dollars lost through this last bad real estate cycle by qualified intermediaries because it's an unregulated industry. So, you know, people have to be very, very careful of who they use before they ever decide to go with a qualified intermediary because there's an assumption in the realtors, lenders, title companies, they're all regulated heavily, but we unfortunately are not. Um, Us, our parent company is Fidelity National Financial. We're the largest qualified intermediary in the nation. We're a Fortune 300 company and we have the highest level of financial security and transparency um, of anybody in the business. 
Right. So like if a lawyer screws up, you, you can kind of go after their license. But um, if you guys screw up, there's no license to go after. So it's the parent company. Yeah, well, and, and also, well, in a lot of cases, it's just there's nobody to go after, period, right? As I don't know if you're familiar with Land America Title. Land America Title was the third largest title company in the nation. They were brought down by their 1031 company that they owned, and which was a smaller competitor of ours. They were, what they were doing is they were investing while, they hold, while we hold title to your client's funds during those 80, 180 days, we can legally invest that money any way we see fit. And what, what that company was doing was they were investing their clients' funds in auction rate securities, which at the time were paying out 6%, which is phenomenal if you think about it. Um, from a standpoint, I don't even know why they charged a fee. because That's making a lot of money off your clients while you're holding their funds. Well, auction rate securities got froze when the market turned and they couldn't close their clients' exchanges. So ended up taking down the third largest title company in the nation when I went into bankruptcy because of it. Um, we can't do that. Um, our parent company is the, actually the largest title insurer in the world. So we, we voluntarily have the highest level of security. We have a $100 million fidelity bond. We have $50 million performance guarantee and $30 million of error emission per transaction. And also the clients, they, they're named on the bank account with us. Their money's not commingled with anybody else's. They will earn the interest while we're holding it, not us. Um, so you know, they, they have to ask all these questions before they agree to do business with anybody to make sure their money is safeguarded because it's not mandatory. All right. Yeah. Well, a lot of good information. I think we went a little bit off topic there, but it's good, uh, good fun and good, good way to test the, the understanding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Russell, anyway, um, people get a hold of you, uh, one of your contact information. Sure, sure. My cell phone is the, I manage all the Western United States for the company, so I travel around quite a bit, but I'm always reachable by cell phone, and that's 530-755-8355. And then also our website is www.ipx1031.com. And then my email address, very simple, russell.marson at ipx1031. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Definitely a lot of things to think about. Again, it's uh, it's a tool in the toolbox, not for every situation, but definitely a good one to, uh, you know, I did it. I think I'm probably going to just eat the taxes on the next one. But yeah, definitely, definitely learn it, learn about it and uh, try and apply it to your situation, guys. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.